Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name's Carl Truman. I'm here with my regular co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, mega church pastor, uh, Joel Osteen of the PCA, as he likes to be called. And today we have a couple of special guests. We have somebody who goes by the rather grand title of the Chancellor's Professor of Historical Theology. I've merely made it to being the Paul Woolley Professor of Church History, but this man is the (laughs) Chancellor's Professor of Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, Chad Van Dixhorn, a graduate, I have to say, of that great university in the east of England, the University of Cambridge, where he his PhD was on the minutes of the gen, of the obviously the General Assembly of the OPC. No, uh, <laughs> same thing. It was like the first General Assembly of the OPC. Uh, the minutes of the Westminster Assembly of the 17th century, out of which a multi-volume scholarly publication from Oxford University Press came a few years ago, which has really transformed in many ways the landscape of studies of 17th century English Reformed theology. And Chad is also a pastor in the greatest Presbyterian denomination, the (laughs) Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he's here with his uh, constant companion, who has an equally grand title. She is Mrs. Emily Van Dixhorn, who likes to be described as a wife and a mother of five who does not homeschool. So <laughs> it's great to have you both on the uh, podcast today. I support homeschoolers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. homeschoolers. <laughs> yeah, no need. Send your hate mail to me, not to the Van Dixons <laughs> on that one. But it's great to have you both on the podcast. And we want to talk about, well, about the work that you've both done on the Westminster Assembly, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, start by talking about two great volumes that well, Chad produced one and Emily produced uh, the other. Chad did a great reader's guide sort of commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith a few years ago, and uh, Emily has produced a study guide to facilitate the use of this book with church study groups around the country. So I wonder if the two of you could tell us how you got the idea for this project and, and what you hope it has achieved and, and will continue to achieve. Well, I'm surprised you didn't start with Emily's own work on the Minutes and Papers of the Assembly, which is a short video on YouTube that shows all of its various uses. Whoa. Ah. So she's a YouTube star. Oh, she is. Yeah. Just Google Minutes and Papers of the Westminster Assembly and you'll find what what Emily thinks that the edition is useful for. So so in addition to not homeschooling, (laughs) she's also a YouTube. That is it. Okay. Do you know, I I I linked that from the Alliance blog when it came out oh, okay. and i was deluged with hate mail of people <laughs> saying that this video was promoting a profane use of the minutes of the westminster assembly <laughs> i kid you not oh, it was quite stunning the complaints we had about it uh, emily it's okay <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all right i just want you to get the full value from the set <laughs> <laughs> great for short people i seem to remember very very helpful for short people the and and just a reminder of how many crazy people there are out there so, yeah. yeah yeah so why don't i say something first because because <laughs> my book came up before your book mm-hmm. um 
so confessing the faith is intended to uh, help individuals and churches just to get better acquainted with a user-friendly map to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It shows kind of how the chapters fit together, and it tries to explain why each of these doctrines is biblical using the proof texts that the assembly themselves provided, which are, you know, for the most part useful. So that's the intention. And it does have a kind of bit of a doxological edge, I suppose, which seems fitting for Puritan literature. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to examine the text, so I don't talk about things that the text doesn't talk about for the most part. So I have no discussion of evolution or homeschooling or anything (laughs) like that, because the Westminster Confession doesn't talk about it. So that was my effort, and then Emily tried to make it more useful. I think she's well. I'm was so excited reading it and hearing it first as it came out as um, Sunday school lessons mm. at our church. They did not allow a long period of time for Sunday school; only a ten to fifteen minute slot, mm. and it was right before worship. So, and that took some persuading to it did wow. that slot. But we he got the slot, and he could explain part of the Westminster Confession, and then it would also prepare us for worship. So I love how doxological Mm -hmm. the writing is and that it's warm, it's accessible. This is not theology just to puff up, but it's theology to prepare us for worship. Well, it's interesting because one of the thoughts I had when I first got the book, Confessing the Faith, is, is how useful that book would be for a Sunday school class, for a discussion group, in my own denomination, in the PCA, where, you know, it's no secret that, you know, the PCA has lots of folks that are first-generation Presbyterians. They've come from Baptist churches or non-denominational evangelical churches, and they don't have any background at all, having ever been catechized. I wasn't. I was born and raised Southern Baptist. And so very, very many members of PCA churches are largely unaware OPC too. of our doctrinal confession. And I grew up outside of the church, didn't become a Christian till I was 25. A few years later, went to seminary and found that I could listen to this lectures very well. Mm-hmm. But then when it came time to write my own papers, it, it was much more difficult. And I think that we need practice in learning how to say things that are not heretical. It's very easy to slide towards yeah. antinomianism or legalism and the the confession phrases these doctrines well so it's good for us to study them yeah emily so i was just speaking at an opc church a group of women and i was talking about the importance of knowing the confession of our hope and mm-hmm. i spent some time talking about creeds and confessions at one of the breakout sessions i was asked you know what are some good books because a lot of these women in the opc church did not grow up with creeds and confessions in their churches like mm-hmm. myself and mm-hmm. and i recommended your pairing of books on confessing yeah. the faith and the study guide mm-hmm. and i told them i'm like now you're going to get confessing the faith and it's like 450 pages <laughs> and you're going to look at it and think oh this is just a bunch of theology and history and, and it is and that's exciting but it's a bit intimidating for um yeah. a lot of people especially busy moms and uh, you have five children yeah so right. maybe you could help us with just sharing you know how can investing in a study like this really engage with our everyday personal lives yeah i have a few angles first of all 
we might pick up a book to address a particular problem we're facing. Mm -hmm. I find that sometimes just cutting right to the theology is a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. A lot more can be said in very few words. So if you're a busy mom, just go right to it. It's not that hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And with a little thought and prayer, you can apply it directly and it might just give you what you need more quickly. Yeah. But I, I was even thinking, for example, if someone wanted to use it in family devotions, the sections in the Confessing the Faith are shorter than one page oftentimes. Right. And you could just read that little a little section and then ask kids or whoever's there to look up some of the verses that are cited and then use a few questions. There's often one to three questions on a particular section, and you have a very simple devotion that you know is orthodox mm -hmm. all set up for you. And you could just do one chapter at a time, like just a chapter on justification, and then it's not overwhelming. Right. It's so wonderful to see how connected your local church is with the historical church. And studying the confessing the faith really helps you to see that. I think studying it also helps us with our own private Bible reading and interpretation mm -hmm. because these doctrines help give us guardrails yes. while we're reading scripture. So it really, I think, strengthens our ability to read scripture as well. Yes. And especially as we're sending kids off to college, I want my kids to have those guardrails in place. <laughs> Yes. I'm excited for them to meet different Christians and people of different views, but then also have a reference point for which to compare these views and not just what the doctrine states, but also understand where they're rooted in scripture. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and like Chad said, it really does lead us to doxology and praise. Chad, a question for you. I mean, you're a, not only you're a, a scholar, but you're also a pastor as well. And many of the questions that now, maybe it's always been this, this way, but certainly many of the questions that come up for pastors these days are ethical questions questions often to do with fertility or something like that that sort of the the general strains and questions that come into ordinary people's lives generally tend to manifest themselves as as questions about you know is this form of behavior legitimate or is this medical treatment legitimate do you think that having a good grasp of you know this is a 17th century document uh, long before in vitro fertilization, et cetera, et cetera, many of the ethical challenges of this day came on the over the horizon. But do you think that it's uh, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Standards, are helpful pastorally in facing those sort of tricky ethical questions that we often face today? I do, and the questions will always keep on changing and morphing. But you know, I I don't apologize for the age of this text. I. I think it has many useful purposes, in part because of its age. I mean, it reminds us that Christianity wasn't invented yesterday or during the Bush administration. <laughs> and it's a good reminder, too, that the basic principles, the, the foundational truths of our faith remain unchanging in the midst of changing ethical questions. You know, what do we think about the image of God? What do we think about what lens do we use to look at the questions and the people posing the questions? Well, you know, having a an understanding of our created purpose, of our fallenness, of the entrenched grasp of sin on our lives, the work of grace. I mean, all of this, I think, you can't approach any of those questions without these 
foundational principles, without these, change my metaphor, that without having all of these lenses through which to look at them. So it obviously doesn't address all the, all the current ethical issues, but it gives you the tools. And, uh, you know, there are also analogs to some of these issues, mm-hmm. but that requires a little more historical digging. I, there are historical references and footnotes, but I try not to encumber the text with them. So, Yes, yeah, one of the th- ways I find actually confessional Christianity to be quite liberating in some ways. So, I mean, we live in an era where it seems every six months there's a petition that somebody's asking you to sign yeah. in opposition to something. And it seems to be 99 out of 100 of such petitions usually just reaffirming something that is either explicitly affirmed or implicitly affirmed in, in the confession. I mean, gay marriage, mm-hmm. big one a few years ago. Uh, the Westminster Confession doesn't mention gay marriage, but clearly has a positive teaching about marriage, which excludes right. the gay marriage as an option for Christians. So I think you know, what you just said is great, Chad, that comprehensive foundation or that wide-ranging lens through which we can look at the particulars of our own era. Extremely useful. And I see the age of the document actually is helping there. A, it gives you some perspective, and B, if a document's been around for a few hundred years and it's still proving useful, life-changing, it's got to have some intrinsic merit, one would imagine. And it shows that we're not just reactionary. When we oppose, saying we've always been opposed to this. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And uh, it's not that we hate you and so have quickly made up a document (laughs) that excludes you from our society or friendship. No, we've always said this is a problem and this is why. So I think the age of the text is helpful in that way. And and we'd love to spend more time with you. Right. Mm, Right. Mm. Um, I I serve as a pastor in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, which has a long history of the Mennonites kind of establishing there early on. And so – the religious landscape of that whole region is very much informed by an anti-creedal, anti-confessional kind of Christianity. Now, we see this, of course, across the landscape of, of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is largely anti-creedal, but oftentimes that's just kind of an accidental anti-creedalism. If you meet some of the people I encounter, they have a, a real hostility towards the idea of a creed or a confession of faith because, it. no, I'm biblical. I, I don't believe in confessions of faith. I believe in the Bible. And so they set up a, a distinction there or, or a, a hostility there that, that shouldn't exist. How would you answer a lay person? So, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting people in, who've come to my church from anti-confessional denominations, and I'm wanting them to understand that in adhering to a, an historic confession of faith is not only not unbiblical, it's actually the safest way to be biblical. How would you explain that to them? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I'd say in part, we're just being honest. Everybody has things that they already believe. Right. right. And uh, the scriptures call us to be ready to confess what we believe. Mm-hmm. So we're being honest. We're telling you what we believe and we're ready. We've typed it out. We've written right. it out. Um, so, so that when we try and, you know, match up pastors and people, we can do that. When we try and have an aspirational teaching standard, it, it goes beyond 10 bullet points on a website. Right. And, um, yeah, I had another thought that even the devil quotes scripture. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at how we use scripture. Yeah. 
And so this lays out a way to use it, a place to check the conclusions we're drawing from it. Right. And what would you tell them about the men who who drafted Mm. the Westminster Confession of Faith to help them understand that these were Bible men? These were men of the original languages. You know, what would you say about their commitments to help some of our brothers and sisters understand that their intention all along was to come up with a very, very sound summary of biblical doctrine. What would you say about the qualifications of these men? Well, they're all godly, thoughtful pastors who had spent intense years, in some cases many years, studying and preaching through the Bible. You know, one of the great things about having pastors write this is not just that they have pastoral sensitivity, is that a good pastoral ministry shapes the pastor by the word that he studies and preaches. Mm -hmm. And so these are men who were transformed by the word of God. And, you know, I have to say, the afterlife of these men, their subsequent legacy, in in a world where so many people fall, in a world at that time where so many men had fallen into all kinds of sins, these men were remarkably faithful. And they're you know, ethically faithful, biblically faithful in the years or decades that remain to them. I mean, I'm thinking, and at the moment, I can't think of any case of scandal Mm. of any Westminster divine. I don't know that you can say that for 120 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so sorry to say that, but pick any denomination, take a random sampling of 120, take their best 120. How faithful are they in the long term? So there's something about their walk with the Lord, the Lord sustaining them, of course, but something about the interface between their their life and their teaching that left a profound testimony on themselves, themselves and others. Right. And one of the things that people have to be careful of in maybe being guilty of thinking there's something especially unique about their generation is that those men lived at a time where it was still easy to sin. <laughs> and you illustrate this some. I mean, these men lived in a, in a religious landscape where there was a great deal of sin and unqualifying behaviors among many of the clergy, correct? <laughs> yeah. In another book, I write about... God's ambassadors? Yeah, in God's ambassadors, there's, there's this incredible book that comes out in, in the beginning of England's civil war, where Parliament takes upon itself the task of kicking some ministers out of churches because they're just so bad. (laughs) And this marvelously titled book, The First Century of Scandalous Malignant Ministers, is published. (laughs) uh, It starts with a guy named John Wilson of Arlington, who's accused of buggery, attempted bestiality, and then it drifts into accounts of drunken ministers, popishly affected pastors— womanizers, rapists, thieves, gamblers, Sabbath breakers, critics of parliament. I don't think that's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Who could stand? Accounts of battery, sexual assault, verbal abuse in the home. Wow. Uh, one minister threatening to burn his wife and children alive. Bribery, mm. neglect of the pulpit, flirting from the pulpit, misogynist jokes from the pulpit, making business ventures out of burials, begging for money during communion. I mean, it goes wow. on and on. Yes, when I read that part, I was just, it was just jaw-dropping for me to read that. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, one of the things that was helpful in kind of, 
you reminding us of their context was, again, I, I think oftentimes we think that in our own day, you know, there's something, you know, uniquely sinful about our own day. And we forget mm-hmm. about the fact that now men in the 17th century, pastors in the 17th century faced all manner of temptation, just as we do today, and, and all manner of peers who are are not fit for right. ministry for any number of Somewhat reasons. discouraging. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the fact that there was this body of faithful men that God had graciously, you know, preserved who had the responsibility of drafting this document, that's an encouraging, mm-hmm. that we ought to be encouraged by that. Yeah, that leads me to my, my next question. You know, there's a lot of talk even within um, Reformed churches that, you know, although we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, it was a w- written a long time ago, and Christians today either uh, can't relate to it or have a hard time understanding it, and and so now new confessions are are being discussed and even formed. Do you think that's wise? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not against it in principle, but I think that a confession has at least two broad purposes. The one is to clearly state what we believe that God requires us to believe. So that's the one. Mm -hmm. The other purpose of these texts is a kind of creedal purpose, uniting us to churches and Christians elsewhere Mm -hmm. and uniting us to churches and Christians throughout history. So there's a breadth and depth there that's intended to be communicated by our confessional commitments. So... No doubt there are ways that we could tweak and add to what the Westminster Confession of Faith already says. But unless you had some groundswell of commitment to a new confession, um, I think it would lose its really important creedal or ecumenical purpose mm. among Reformed Christians. And broadly, well beyond, you know, fully confessional churches, there are are those who hold to most mm-hmm. of uh, this confession. And, and so how do you do that? And then there's the whole question of how do you find people that are equipped to do right. it who aren't so full of what the Holy Spirit's taught them that they're actually willing to hear what the Holy Spirit's taught someone else. Hmm. Touching on the book you mentioned a few minutes ago, Chad, uh, God's Ambassadors, subtitle is The Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the English Pulpit, 1643 to 1653. Clearly, you're zeroing in in this book in in what is one of the, the central practical innovations of Protestantism based, of course, upon its theological convictions, and that is the centrality of the proclaimed word to the life of the church. If I were to ask you, What is the one thing that contemporary preachers could learn from the men of the 17th century relative to the art of preaching? What would it be? It seems to me that that one of the great weaknesses of the Reformed Church today is preaching, which is ironic, being Mm -hmm. as we make that such a central part of who we are and of our identity, the fact that Many of our seminaries, and I'm including my own in this one, I would love to see us producing more and better preachers than we are. What do you think the 17th century guys can teach us? I suppose, um, you know, as a group, the 17th century guys teach us by good example and bad example. You know, the, the Westminster Assembly itself has good and bad preachers. 
But I think there's an alertness to the potential depths of a passage that a lot of ministers today seem to be blind to or unwilling to tackle. We preach a lot of easy points today, and it can make for very dull listening. <laughs> but, but I guess even more basic than that, the Westminster divines, when they preached, they didn't avoid the sticky bits. And when I listen to young preachers, when I go to big churches and see the passage printed in the bulletin, I'll often notice that the passage selected and then on top of that, the way in which the passage is preached will often avoid the hard bits. And it's as if the preacher thinks that if they don't talk about it, no one will notice it. (laughs) And, you know, our Puritan forefathers had a higher estimation of their congregations. (laughs) They knew that people reading their Bible, they'd come up with questions like, Wow, how do I deal with that? How do I talk about that with my kids or my my family? How do I think about it myself? And they always dealt with the sticky bits and not just the easy bits. And so I think that's perhaps one of the greatest lessons we can learn from them. Interesting. Mm. Well, uh, obviously this is a conversation we could continue. It's such a rich topic, and we've gone to the right people for it. But as a pastor, I I recommend Chad Van Dixhorn's work, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith, is a book that sits on my desk um, in my study because I just I refer to it periodically, not just for devotional reading, but even in sermon preparation as I'm dealing with various doctrines. It's just a helpful tool for me to draw upon the confessional foundations of my church and can help to introduce people to those things. And so we really commend this work to you. And for there to be a study guide to go with it is such a great gift because you can not only make use of that in small groups, but even as was suggested earlier, make it part of the dinnertime conversation um, in your family. And you can actually have an easy way to begin introducing your children to this incredibly rich resource, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, Chad and Emily, thank you so much for coming on with us. You know, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, we tell people right off the bat that they're risking their career, possibly, by appearing with us. And um, we're so glad that you uh, joined us. And to our listeners, we're going to be giving away some copies of Chad's book, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you'll see a place where you can enter to win a copy of this wonderful resource, and we hope that you'll do that. While you're there, you might want to consider uh, making a financial donation so that we can continue to offer this podcast. But we're so glad you joined us. We're so thankful for Chad and Emily Dixhorn for taking time to talk about these wonderful subjects and these wonderful people. And until we meet again, we'll see you the next time you tune in to another exciting episode of Mortification of Spin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. 
And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. constantly picking up papers that fell on the floor? With the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly, you can keep your papers in place. Don't bend down another time to pick a paper up off the floor. The minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly will spare you the trouble. Bills piling up on your desk? Look, with the five-volume set of the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly, you can hold down not one, not two, but five piles of bills all at once. That's right, Five piles of bills. If you have lots of bills waiting on your desk, the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly is for you. But wait, if you buy two now for a limited time, you can receive a special gift to you. The minutes and papers of the Westminster Assembly mug, complete with a quotation from the minutes and pictures of a select Westminster divine. Act now and in the next 20 minutes. And we will include not one, not two, but three mugs. That's right, three mugs. But hurry, supplies are limited. Dial 1-800-MINUTES. That's 1-800-M-I-N-U-T-E-S to get your copy today. All major credit cards accepted. The author and publisher are not responsible for any injury, broken back, broken legs, broken neck, insomnia, paralysis, financial debt, bankruptcy that may result from use of this product.